Our scripture passage this morning, if you'd like to turn there with me, is from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 11 and 12, and then we'll read verses 18 through 25. You'll remember that here in this chapter, we've been reminded by the Apostle Peter that as Christians living in a a hostile environment often at times, uh, we are called uh, to continue to walk faithfully with the Lord, and that faithful walk with the Lord has a powerful uh, witness that the Lord uses uh, in a hostile environment. Last time we read about how specifically we are to show ourselves to be Christian uh, in our uh, attitude towards the governing authorities, to the human institutions ordained uh, over us, to those authorities over us. And so uh, today uh, the Apostle Peter seeks to apply, again, verses 11 and 12, uh, to the home. And so we move from uh, our uh, relationship to the government, to the state, uh, and to a time where Peter will speak about, well, how do you apply being a born-again Christian, uh, belonging to Jesus Christ in all your relationships that we find in the home? And so, 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12, and then down to verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Then verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing, gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this... You have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're word is living and active and penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, that, Lord, your word speaks and you speak through that word by your spirit even today. And so, Lord, we pray that we would know that truth today, that this truth of Scripture would be alive to us 
and that by your Holy Spirit we would respond uh, as those who know you, who love you, and who desire to see you glorified and honored in our life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been thinking about a, uh, a possible new outreach idea for Sovereign, for sovereign Grace. Uh, you know, many uh, churches have signs that they put on the road. Um, when usually they have their own building when they do this, of course, but uh, they have signs they put out in front of their church building, and, and they try to, uh, you know, grab passerby's attention with some, with some uh, you know, pithy words that uh, will draw them in, perhaps, to the place of worship. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, oh, I wonder if, I wonder if the Apostle Peter could help us. And uh, I thought, well, I think he probably could. You know, chapter 1, uh, reading chapter 1, maybe we could put on the sign something like, um, you know, born again, uh, grace has come, uh, new life begun. You know, join us for worship. That sounds pretty good. Hey, that might be a good one. And I thought, well, maybe chapter 2 uh, would have a, some pithy things we could put on a sign to uh, and, you know, encourage people to join us for what the, our Christian life is all about. And I thought, yeah, actually, this will work perfect because there's, Peter gives us three S's. Uh, he even gives us some alliteration in 1 Peter 2. It would go like this. Join us this Sunday, uh, called to submission, called to service, and called to supper. And then I thought, I'm not sure that sign would work. But nonetheless, that's what we read. We've noted in our study of 1 Peter that the theme of this letter is how to live for Christ in a hostile culture. When you are born again, uh, you have been raised from the dead through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have new life uh, in him. Uh, You love him even though you haven't seen him. And you've received grace. You've received salvation. Uh, How do you live? How do you live? Uh, in America in 2022. And along the way, we've seen hints of this in Peter's letter, that there's, there's, there's an issue here in the world around. So verse 6 of chapter 1, he said, In this you rejoice. He just talked about how we have new life in Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved uh, by various trials, or as some translations say, grievous trials. So these are born-again Christians, but... There's grievous trials at times to face. Chapter 2, verse 12, uh, we read, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. So, born-again Christians, uh, yes, grievous trials, and people uh, calling them uh, evil. Evil. Even though they're followers of of Christ. And so we've seen little hints of that along the way, but... Now we come uh, to, you know, kind of a portion of, the, of, the, of this uh, letter that the Apostle Peter will more and more focus on the possibility and uh, the reality of suffering for Christ. And that this is, this is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian or, or someone who is united to Christ by faith. Um, we also share in his suffering. Now, perhaps that should be no surprise Uh, that we're starting to focus a little more on that aspect of the Christian life uh, in a section of the letter where uh, Peter is taking the grand realities of the gospel, uh, what is proclaimed about who we are in Jesus, uh, and he's beginning then to apply them uh, to the nitty-gritty of your life 
and my life. And so don't, don't miss this. This very simple truth of the Bible emphasized throughout that if you live, you know, if you actually apply what you believe about Jesus and what is said about you as a Christian, if you actually live faithfully as a born-again, blood-bought, spirit-indwelt, word-craving, living stone-believing, chosen, royal, holy, uh, Christ's excellencies proclaiming, mercy receiving, passions of the flesh abstaining, honorable conduct keeping, submissive for the Lord's sake obeying, free servants of God honoring, loving, and God-fearing people, you will meet opposition, or as Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's just a simple truth that Peter would help us with. Don't ever think that being a Christian will win you the approval of sinful men and a sinful world. But then again, if you are in Christ and you know Christ, it's not the world's approval and smile you crave. Anyway, Paul puts it wonderfully in Galatians 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Remember, he starts Galatians with some pretty strong words to the Galatian church. He says, listen, I, you are forsaking the gospel. How is this happening? Um, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Notice what he says. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So in the apostle's mind, these are opposite things. If you're a man pleaser, if you live for men and women's approval, the Bible says you are not a servant of Christ. Get that clear. But if you're seeking to please God uh, and not concerned about the approval of men, that is the servant of Christ, Paul says. If I was still pleasing men, I would not be a servant. Our Christian life is a witness to the world. In the first place, Peter began, you remember, to show us where the rubber meets the road, where uh, you know, there's some difficulty involved is in our attitude to the government and to the governing authorities. The institutions of men established for our good. It's the will of God, we read last time, that we be subject to them in submission to them. Uh, by doing good, Peter told us, we muzzle them. We, muzzle, uh, we silence uh, you know, those who close their eyes to the truth uh, of the gospel and speak against Christ and his church by continuing to live faithfully for the Lord, that a muzzle is put on that because they have nothing to say against you. The faithful, obedient, God-honoring lives of God's people, Peter tells us, has a powerful witness upon the world around us that God will use for His glory. And the day of visitation, when God visits somebody who's an unbeliever, comes to work in, the, in their life, they're going to they're remember and God's going to use all those things that unbeliever has seen in the lives of the believers at Sovereign Grace. And they will give glory to God for what they have seen in the lives of his people. And last time again, we saw Peter saying, you know, you've been set free in Christ. You've been set free from the guilt and power of sin. Not so that you're free to live for yourself, but free to live as servants of God. So we saw submission and service, two words for the Christian to live by, but this morning we need to add a third S word uh, to the calling of the Christian, for it becomes clear in this passage that the Christian in a hostile culture, according to the word of God, is also called to suffer in such a time. Having spoken of the Christian 
and the governing authorities, Peter turns to the Christian and the relationships that existed in the home of first century believers. Servants, he says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Hmm. This is Peter's message here. The Christian life is a calling to suffering. Suffering in the life of the Christian, two points this morning, suffering in the life of the Christian is our calling, and suffering in the life of the Christian is our glory. Our calling and our glory. First of all, suffering in the life of the Christian is our calling. Now, the first distinct group of people in the church that Peter addresses is servants. Now, in verse 16, we read that word servants before, uh, that all believers are uh, the servants of God. There, the Bible uses the term doulos or douloi, uh, which means slave. Uh, That is, we have a master. We don't belong to ourselves as Christians, even though he he does that in the context of freedom. You are set free, uh, but you have a master. Um, That's not a problem for the Christian, because you're free, you know, from sin. You're free from guilt. And uh, Peter says, you don't use your freedom to cover up sin. You don't say, oh, I can, you know, I've been, I've been forgiven by Christ. doesn't matter how I live. And if someone calls you to account for how you're living, you just, the Bible says, you just throw a cloak over it. You just cover it up and say, well, never mind how I'm living. I'm free in Christ. And you cover up evil. Peter says, no, the believer does not do that because the believer knows that he's been set free from the, the guilt and power and bondage of sin in order that he and she... Uh, might live as servants of Jesus Christ and following him as their, as their master. So that's what he was saying. Um, and so uh, we are servants of God. We're bound to God. Uh, we belong to him. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the, uh, the, the Dutch Reformed heritage, uh, you may recall that in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, there is a first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism written in the 16th century That tells you what this is all about. What's your only comfort in life and death? That that I'm not my own. Uh Uh-oh, problem right there in our culture today. This is what the believer says, though, that I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil... He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And then this, because I belong to him, slave, master, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's what it means, right? To belong to Jesus. He's fully paid for all my sins, and I am willing and ready now not to live for myself, but to live as a servant of God. And speaking of servants, Peter addresses them first in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, this word servant is a little different. It is not the word douloi, uh, but oiketai. It means a household servant. It means someone uh, working in the home. Again, this is Peter moving to the, not now the state, but he's talking about what's going on in, in Roman homes in the first century. Well, you've got, you've got servants there, servants of all kinds. 
Uh, you got cooks, you got accountants, you got maybe doctors, nurses. You think of bigger homes, they would have uh, house uh, servants. Now, unquestionably, when we read the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, we know that Jesus often was in ministry to the poor. That is, to uh, those who were uh, in difficult circumstances of life. They certainly seem to be drawn to Jesus, uh, especially in the Gospel of Luke. We read of uh, those outcasts of society uh, on the lower part of the totem pole, you know, they were drawn to Jesus, and, uh, and he ministered so wonderfully to them. And so we shouldn't be surprised, perhaps, that Peter begins to uh, apply his message of the Christian calling to suffer to those who are already servants in society, who are already seen kind of as the bottom of the social ladder, let's say. Now, most of those whom Peter addresses here were probably slaves. That is, they were house servants, but... Uh, It's not like they had entered into some kind of contract. Many did, uh, but many, perhaps, Peter is speaking to, are slaves in the sense that they didn't have a choice in their servanthood. That is, they couldn't quit uh, when the work proved too burdensome, and there were no no societal changes on the horizon in the Roman Empire in the first century. There was no uh, move to emancipate anyone in the first century Roman Empire. So this was their situation. They came to faith in Christ. Uh, They are house servants. Uh, How should they live as a Christian? Elsewhere in Scripture, we hear uh, similar instruction, Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Paul instructs Titus, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In the time of the New Testament, the slave population in the Roman world was uh, enormously high. Uh, One historian suggested that in the reign of Claudius, who reigned during part of Paul's ministry, part of Paul's letter writing, uh, that the slaves were at least equal uh, in number to those who were free uh, in the Roman world. Some estimate the number to be much higher than that. And so when the gospel is first heard, a large number of those to whom the gospel first came were in that situation. They were slaves. But now they were Christians, household servants, often with pagan masters. And uh, if you were a household servant of someone who's not a Christian, well, no doubt that master would expect you to you know, participate along with the family and you know, whatever household gods they were worshiping and, you know, um, just carry along with them. And so this message of the Christian calling to suffer while yet doing good was of utmost significance because they were subject to their masters every day. And so this message was of utmost importance for them that they should live out their calling in such a way that God would be praised and honored. And what does Peter tell them? Well, he says our calling uh, is to endure suffering, uh, being mindful of God. This is what he says. For this is a gracious thing, verse 19, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this, the Bible says, is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, the real problem, of course, is found right here. What was happening to these Christians was un 
just. They were suffering, uh, but there was no just reason for it. Uh, They were not living ungodly lives. They were not disobeying God's word. In fact, Peter says here, their conscience toward God was clear. That is the expression, they were mindful of God. Or it could be interpreted uh, out of consciousness for God, uh, with with thoughts of God, or before the face of God, or uh, quorum Deo, we could say. And that's that's a beautiful picture. He's talking here about uh, household servants who, uh, as they go about their work, um, uh, there is this sense that they do everything, they say everything, um, consciously thinking, I'm doing this uh, before the face of God. I'm mindful of God in how I live. Um, And when you are mindful of God, says Peter, and you do what is right, uh, and you, uh, you suffer wrongfully, the Bible says that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That could be translated, that is, it is commendable in the sight of God, or it is, it is pleasing to God. It is approved by God. When you do what is right and faithful and true as a Christian, and yet you suffer sorrow for doing it. That, the Bible says, is a gracious thing. Uh, What do you do? Well, Peter says you continue to respect that authority. Uh, You continue to be mindful of God and you endure sorrows while suffering. Now, here's the thing. Verse 21 says, Peter, for, for, verse 21, or because to this you have been called. That is, this is not an accident. That is, this sorrow you're enduring because of suffering, uh, you know, does not come into your life unawares by God. But in fact, uh, Peter says uh, by the Spirit that that this this is part of your calling to suffer unjustly when being faithful to the Lord and mindful of Him. We endure that sorrow, we persevere. To this, you have been called, wrote John Calvin. Here we need to reflect on the kind of life to which our Lord Jesus Christ calls us once we're in his school. Uh, uh, We have back-to-school luncheon today, so this is perfect. So John Calvin says, well, let's think about school. When you're called into the school of Christ, it's important, says Calvin. Let's, let's, Let's remember what this is all about. He bids each of us renounce self and take up our cross. Remember that passage. The word cross implies that everyone should carry, this is how Calvin put it, that everyone should carry with him his own gallows. That we should be like those poor wretches who have a knife to their throat, that is, they're about to be killed. That we should be afflicted and mocked. That not only should death be our companion, but that we should be vilified and slandered as well, insulted and spat upon. This is what he says. We're meant to endure all of that to bear it bravely like a burden placed upon our shoulders, just as a traveler might carry his bundle on his back. And so our Lord declares that we cannot come after him or be counted as one of his followers unless we take up our load. To that, we have to give up our comforts. We are to be as men condemned, under threat of death, beset from every side, our life lived in continual weakness. That, he says, is the plain ABC which is taught in the school uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, called 
to suffer. Well, let me tell you what our natural reaction will always be when we're confronted with someone who is giving us grief. Now, here the Bible says, a Christian, if you are faithful to the Lord, part of your calling that you will suffer unjustly as a result of it, as you seek to live the Christian life. Now, our normal reaction to someone who's giving us grief is, uh, we want to avoid that person like the plague. Uh, We want to avoid suffering like the plague. If doing the right thing is going to make trouble for us, if doing the right thing or saying the right thing, being faithful to the Lord, mindful of God, if that's going to cause us grief, we won't do it. Or we won't say it. We want to avoid any negative consequences. That's natural. And Peter's saying here, look, I know... I know that as servants of God, you're going to be put in situations where honoring God, honoring God is going to be a very difficult thing to do, household servant in a pagan home. Uh, It's going to be a very difficult thing to do, to be faithful to God. The temptation, the pressure will be to avoid the difficulty, to avoid the suffering, but you, says Peter, uh, who belong to Christ, are called to endure those sorrows that come with suffering, and that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, Peter is saying to Christians living in a hostile world, what is most important is not what the world thinks of you, uh, but what God thinks. So if you're a child, you're thinking, should I obey my parents or not? Well, my other friends don't. You're thinking as a child, uh, what, is, what is commendable in the sight of, of, of my God? If you're a teenager... Uh, you're not thinking, oh, what are my friends going to say if I do this? If I go to church on Sunday, if they see me open my Bible, or they see me pray at school, what are they going to say about me? No. A teenager says, uh, what is commendable in the sight of God? And an adult or a parent, um, you know, I don't know if my children are going to like this if I discipline them or if I'm faithful to raise them up in the way of the Lord. Maybe I'll just let them choose uh, because I don't want them not to like me or something like that. No. A parent, mindful of God, what is commendable in God's sight, to raise up your children in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Commendable before God to endure sorrows because of suffering. What is not commendable to God is to avoid the consequences of faithfulness to God by not being faithful. That is not a gracious thing in the sight of God. That when someone professes faith in Christianity, uh, but then when they're actually called to live out their Christianity in their life, and because there's going to be suffering as a result, they say, I, I, well, I can't do that. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I can't do that. That is not commendable before. What's, what's a gracious thing at the sight of God is faithfulness that even endures sorrow for the sake of Christ. You know what that means? That means very practically God says, if because you're mindful of God when you're applying for a job, and that, that job, it's not, you're not a doctor or a nurse or something like that, you're, just, let's, you're, you're applying for any job, and they say, uh, listen, unless you're willing to work on the Lord's Day, yeah, you can't work here. So what do you do? You know that the Bible says uh, that God has set apart one day in seven as holy, on which you shouldn't work, uh, nor should you make any servants work for you. You know God says that. And yet your employer says, well, but if you're faithful to that, no job here. They say, well, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. And even though I don't get this job, I know that this is pleasing in God's sight to be faithful and even to endure uh, the sorrows of suffering because I've been faithful to him. That is 
That is my joy. That's what it means. It means uh, not thinking uh, that suffering wrongfully is somehow not part of what it means to be a Christian. It is, says the Bible, it is your calling that your faithfulness will in fact lead to needing to endure sorrow for suffering. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6-7 to the church there. Remember the church there was arguing about something or other and they brought each other into court. These are professing Christians and so they're arguing about uh, things in court that uh, Paul says, listen, you should anybody in the church who has the wisdom of Christ should, you know, should have been able to reconcile this for you, but instead you've gone to the court. And you remember what he says to them? He says this, why not rather be wronged? And we say, well, why not rather be wronged? Because that gives me grief. I'm not going to be wronged. And Paul says, you know, why not rather be wronged? Instead, he says, you've, you've committed sin yourself. You see, it's better, says Paul, to be sinned against than to sin yourself. It's better to endure the, the suffering that is occasioned by the sin of others. Better to endure that patiently than to yourself commit sin by being unfaithful, of course, to the Lord. Well, the question then becomes, why? Why is this part of the calling of the Christian to suffer while being faithful and endure sorrows even, even from suffering that, that's wrongfully coming your way. That's unjust. Why would this be on our side called to suffer? For this reason, Peter says, suffering in the Christian life is not only your calling, but it is uh, your glory. It's your glory uh, because this was the path of your Savior. Notice what he says, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Remember this says, Peter, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, the example here, Peter says, that Christ has left us is a very specific example. It is an example of suffering wrongfully and enduring the grief that was brought about by his faithful obedience to the will of God. You know, sometimes uh, this passage has been appealed to that we would follow in his steps uh, by encouraging the Christian church uh, to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And at best, that, that's a good question because it's asking, you know, what, what does righteousness demand? What does the Bible say? Uh, and, and all those things. Uh, unfortunately, it means that we have neglected the fact that the context of these verses is that we are to follow his steps, not in deciding what ice cream to eat or you know, what house to buy or where should I live? What would Jesus do in that situation? The Bible says uh, we need to follow in his steps in, in, in being faithful to the Lord and enduring wrongs unjustly. Those are the steps that the Christian is called to walk in. 
he has left us, the Bible says, an example uh, or, a, uh, or a template could be called. The uh, word there, uh, left us, it really means he has left behind. That is, purposefully, uh, he has left something for our benefit. And the Bible says it's an example. It actually means a template. It was used in the uh, ancient world to uh, describe the tracing, of, uh, the tracing out of letters so that um, children would learn to write. Speaking of school again, so you remember you, when you were in first grade, I think it was, right? You'd get a handout from the teacher and you'd have all sorts of broken A's and broken B's and broken C's and, and you would take your pen or pencil and uh, you would trace those letters so that you would, you know, you keep tracing and tracing and tracing and tracing and tracing and then you got to do your own line and to, and to write that letter, right? The word example uh, means uh, a tracing. So we learn to write because someone has left behind the perfect pattern. We learn to live as Christians in a hostile culture and environment by tracing uh, the life of Christ and walking in his steps. He suffered, Peter says, not for his sin, but for our sin. Now, we're going to look at that more carefully next time. There's no way that we could get a grasp of that verse this morning. We're going to look at that next time. What does that mean? But for now, the point Peter's making is simply this. He suffered the unjust persecution of a hostile world, yet faithfully endured. And your calling as a Christian, my calling as a Christian, because I'm born again, been raised to new life, because I'm united to Christ by faith, uh, because I'm united to him, I too must walk that path of suffering unjustly in faithfulness to God. That's important, don't you think? We need to remember that, yes, God has called us to victory, to sound the battle cry and fight the good fight of the faith and see the reign of Christ extended in our own lives and in our families, in the church, in our country, and among all nations. Don't forget, he is king of kings, he is lord of lords, and the Great Commission is not going to fail. Disciples will be made of all the nations. And we're heading towards a new heavens and a new earth. And all that is true. But never forget, God says here through Peter, that you're also called as a Christian to suffer for the sake of Christ. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul over in Philippians put it um, wonderfully this way. He says, for it's been granted to you, that is, it's been given to you, Philippians 1.29, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This has been granted to you, says the Apostle Paul. In other words, this has been gifted to you that not only you would believe in, not only believe in Jesus, but actually then in your life as you live for Jesus, you are going to experience some of the same sorrows and suffering that the Savior endured as well. And that, Peter says, that is your, uh, that is your glory. That in union with the Savior, you too suffer in faithfulness to Him. By following, in his, by following in his steps. And friends, uh, we need to hear this word from the Apostle Peter. And we need to hear this word in, in closing just from the book of Hebrews because we all get weary 
Uh, we all know that um, none of us likes to suffer. None of us likes to endure sorrows. So what keeps us going? What keeps us faithful to Christ as those who belong to him? Well, Hebrews 12 goes like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then uh, the author says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you ever go weary in trying to live faithfully in our country for Jesus Christ? If you're not weary now, you will become weary at some point. And you will say to yourself, Lord, I don't know. I, people don't seem to be running into the church by droves. In fact, the more I try to live for Jesus in my family or among my friends or in this state or in this nation, the more I seek to live faithfully for you, Lord, it just seems that the more difficult it becomes. Is this really the right way? Well, and the author of the Hebrews says, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then he says this, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So if you think it's hard, if I think it's hard to be a faithful Christian in a hostile America, the author to the Hebrews says, consider Jesus and remember, you have not yet had to deal with faithfulness to Jesus when it means the shedding of your blood. Take heart. <laughs> consider him, you see. And we, as we belong to him, follow in his steps, in union with him. Now, of course, as we walk in his steps, and this is what we'll look at next time, of course, there's a big difference between the suffering of Jesus for faithfulness to God and your suffering and my suffering for Jesus in faithfulness to God. You know what it is? Your suffering doesn't save anybody. But Jesus' suffering saves his people, you see. And that's what we want to look at, you see, next time. So let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, this is difficult for us. But Lord, we, we know that even as Peter was writing to the first century church who were suffering unjustly, some perhaps even to the point of death, as we read from church history, Lord, that these words that came to them, Lord, they were being prepared for a lifetime of service in your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us as believers here in America and 
in the 21st century, uh, Lord, that we would know that this is the calling of the Christian, called to submission, called to service, uh, called to suffer uh, in, uh, in union with our Savior for His sake, being mindful of You, our God. Lord, knowing that He has gone before us and that there is no suffering that we would ever endure that He has not gone through before. So Lord, help us today to consider Jesus who endured the suffering, the hostile uh, acts of all those around Him for our sake and then calls us as those who know Him, who love Him, who are being fashioned into His image. Lord, that we would know that this then is the path you have called us to walk in union with our Savior. And then help us, we pray to your Lord, not to grow weary in doing good, but to look to Jesus, to consider him so that we might be strengthened, encouraged for whatever you might bring to us in our walk with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.